Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. A guest preacher was invited to a church and when he began his sermon, people seemed to be enjoying his message. They were responding. They were enthusiastic about the sermon. And the preacher sort of picked up on this, that people liked his message. Willie, they got, he got excited about this because people were excited about what he was saying. And that encouraged him a little too much. He just kept going and going longer and longer and longer. This sermon got, and finally, he noticed the pastor of the church was even responding to his message. But it was strange. It was a little odd because the pastor just kept saying over and over again, Amen, Pharaoh. Amen, Pharaoh. Well, eventually, the guest preacher finished and after the service, he went up to the pastor and he asked why the pastor kept saying the last 20 minutes of the sermon, Amen, Pharaoh. Amen, Pharaoh. And the pastor of the church, he just looked at him and told him, I was trying to tell you to let my people go. You guys can probably relate. Probably my last amen for the morning. Read, behave. Let me ask you a question this morning. Are you in a hurry? Are you in a hurry in your life? What is it specifically in your life that you've been praying on that God has not directly answered yet? The famous New England preacher Philip Brooks, if you've never heard of him, he was known for being calm. You can kind of see that on his picture, kind of stoic, kind of calm and just relaxed. He's kind of a quiet guy. But there were times where just like everyone else, he could get a little bit cranky, a little bit irritable. And one day, a friend saw him just pacing the floor like a caged lion. And his friend said to him, Dr. Brooks, what's the problem? What's the trouble? And his response was, I'm in a hurry, but God isn't. What's well, easy, isn't it, for us as believers to become impatient with God? Even some of the great men and great women of the Bible battled with this. And next week we're going to see this with Moses. The problems of life. The constant stress in life. Sickness, financial problems, relationships, family problems, or even the stubborn habits of sin. We get tired. We get worn out and angry at other people for almost no reason at all. And when this mindset kicks in, it seems impossible to think good thoughts. It becomes hard to live by faith. We're not at peace. Our lives are kind of marked at that point by inconsistency, if you will. Something is eating away at us. So what do we do about it? 
Well, we find help this morning in Acts chapter 7 by seeing the sovereign hand of God, by seeing the patience of God, and how He works things out for His glory, and ultimately, one way or another, our good. Now, if you were not with us last week, Stephen is standing before the Jewish Sanhedrin. And he's showing these men that they were following the same trap, rejecting the men that God had spoken through. The same trap that Israel had gone down before, rejecting the continued revelation of God. And now they had taken this ultimate and final step of rejecting the Savior, Jesus Christ. So in Stephen's defense, we left off with him citing Joseph, now governor over all of Egypt. And here comes the famine. Pick it up in your own Bibles with me, if you would, in our text with verse 11. Now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And the second time, Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. Now at this point in the story in Genesis, Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt. He sent, if you remember, Joseph's brothers down to Egypt. And watch how verse 13 starts out here in Acts. It's very important. On the second time, notice that wording, on the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers. It's kind of a subtle point, but it's actually very powerful once we draw this out. You see, Stephen is reminding us that it was not until the second trip down to Egypt that his brothers actually recognized who Joseph was. And they looked back at their actions at that point of plotting to kill Joseph, throwing him into that pit, selling him off into slavery. And they realized that when they stood before him that second time down in Egypt, that God had orchestrated everything so, so beautifully in his time. He used their sin. He used strangers in a foreign land. He used all the circumstances of life, all of it. God even used the one they had tried to kill to deliver them from the famine in the land. Now later on, down in verse 27, we're going to see this again with Moses. It took 40 years in the desert with Moses, where Moses was rejected, before the people would accept Moses when he came to them a second time, as the man that God had actually chosen to deliver the people out of the hand of Pharaoh. We see this down in verse 35. Jump down in your Bibles, if you would. Stephen is speaking about Moses, and notice what he says in verse 35. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? Is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. So let's pull this together. Let's apply this. Let's figure out where Stephen's going. Both men, Joseph and Moses, they were rejected at first, rejected the first time, but welcomed at their second coming as God's chosen man to deliver his people. Do you see how Stephen is starting to plant some seeds here and he's starting to point us to Christ? 
rejected at his first coming by the Jews, but he will be welcomed by the Hebrew people that the Lord brings out of the great tribulation when Christ our Savior comes a second time. So let's head back, if you would, to Genesis 45, and let's take another look this morning at what happened with Joseph. Genesis 45, and we'll go to verse 4. Joseph, at this point in the text in Genesis, he's revealing himself to his brothers. And Joseph said to his brothers, Please come near to me. So they came near. Then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. Now watch the contrast in the text between the work of man and the work of God. They had sold him into slavery. But God was at work. Verse 5. But now, do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for what? God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years the famine has been in the land and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So think of this. Two years of famine. You think you're not patient. (laughs) Two years of famine. Five more years to go. Years had gone by since Joseph had seen his brothers. And what is Joseph's conclusion at the end of it all? It's in verse 8. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. It wasn't you. It was God. God sent him. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and the Lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. And here comes an application for every single one of us. Be willing to take a step back and look at the bigger picture of what God is doing in your life. Joseph was telling his brothers, God steered it all. God steered it all. He steered the bigger picture, the circumstances of life in his time. And it took years. But he used this to rescue Joseph's family from certain death. Skip ahead to Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50. Now at this point, I think Genesis 50 is pretty much just awesome. Because at Genesis 50, Jacob, he's dead. And so... You expect a little bit of maturity out of Joseph's brothers, but not all that much is what we find. With verse 15, we see that the brothers of Joseph, what are they worried about? Well, they're actually worried because, hey, Jacob's dead. And so they actually thought that Joseph, oh, he'd take revenge. He'd take revenge on them. That's what they were worried about. They didn't trust Joseph after all of this. That's how brothers are. Verse 20, Joseph responds, But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about, as it is this day, to save many people alive. You see, God took the rejection of Joseph, and in the end, he made this rejection an instrument, if you will, of life. So this is the comparison that Stephen is making back in the book of Acts for us. The rejection of Jesus, that was just wicked. I mean, that was evil. That was a horrible thing that they did. But at the same time, it really was a great victory for the work of God. Because without the death and resurrection, we got nothing. 
as believers. Without the death and resurrection, there's nothing. But that death and resurrection, it came by the rejection of the Jews. There'd be no salvation if it wasn't for it. You know, if you think back to the Gospels, men mocked the Christ. They spit on him. They beat him. And then they crucified him. But God, God meant it for good. The rejection of Joseph, when Joseph was sold into slavery, it ushered in, if you will, a time of trouble, really, for the patriarchs. A time of trouble for Jacob and his children. Because remember what we saw, there was a great famine in the land at the time. And it was during this time of trouble that Jacob and his family, they looked for salvation from the death of the famine in the land of Canaan. Let's make some connections in our thinking here. Heading now, if you will, to the book of Jeremiah. Because in Jeremiah 30, we read of the time coming known as Jacob's trouble. Jeremiah 30 is a a section of text that all speaks of God eventually restoring the nation of Israel to the promised land. Jeremiah 30, we'll look first at verse 3. For behold... The days are coming, says the Lord, that I will bring back from captivity my people Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. Now these are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. For thus says the Lord, we have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. Now notice the powerful description that the Lord gives of how desperate, don't underestimate how desperate the tribulation will be. Watch this. Ask now and see whether a man is ever in labor with a child. Why would he say that? That's odd. (laughs) That's a little odd. Well, here's why. So why do I see every man with his hands on his loins like a woman in labor in all faces turned pale? Alas, for that day is great so that none is like it. And it is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. And watch the wording again. For it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from your neck and I will burst your bonds. Foreigners shall no more enslave them. See the parallel? But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up. You see, when the Jews are restored... After the tribulation, they will serve the Lord, their God. The Jews, at the second coming of Christ, will serve the Messiah that they had once rejected so, so long ago. So let's think of the beauty of God's word. Let's think of what it's hinting at. The life of Joseph, written down by Moses roughly 1,400 years before the birth of Jesus. The life of Joseph, it pointed to the first coming and rejection of Christ. And it pointed to the second coming and the deliverance of the Jews. So what happened in Joseph's day with the famine and all that will be repeated on a global, global scale to drive the Jews to a point where they come to faith in Jesus Christ. So back in our passage, now in the book of Acts, before we move forward, there's one more thing you need to notice 
Stephen wanted to make sure that the Sanhedrin was aware that during the famine there was no food to be found. Absolutely no food to be found. And the people of God, what did they do? They looked to Egypt. They recognized God was working outside of the promised land. So head down to verse 14 in your text. And notice with me what it says. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him. Seventy-five people. Now, people today get all bent out of shape on this verse. Because Genesis 46, it refers to the 70 people, not the 75. The 70 people who went to Egypt, not including their wives. So Stephen says 75. What do we do with this? Well, here is why there's basically a difference. Stephen was a Hellenist Jew, meaning he spoke Greek. And he used that Greek translation that we were talking about this morning in Sunday school. He used the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And when the Jewish translators made the Greek version of the Old Testament, they added in five people to the total. The Hebrew text is actually very consistent all throughout all the Old Testament manuscripts. They all have 70 in the manuscripts. The Greek translation of the Old Testament has 75. And Stephen is using the Greek and he quoted the number 75. Now both numbers are actually correct depending on who you include in the list. Who you want to count. Both numbers are correct. But here's where I want you to focus on. Think of the parallels. Think of the parallels with Christ. You have Joseph. He's down in Egypt, sitting at the right hand of Pharaoh with a Gentile bride. His desire was to restore his brothers, to be reconciled to them. This was a man that was motivated by love at this point and forgiveness. And everything he did was really, if you look at that story in Genesis, it was designed to bring his brothers to the point where they would say this. We are truly guilty. We are guilty concerning our brother. For we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us. And he would not hear. And we would not hear. Therefore, his distress has come upon us. When his brothers were ready, when his brothers had gotten to that point and they were ready and they were finally humble before him in one of the most emotional scenes in the entire Bible, he made himself known and he told them simply this, I'm Joseph, I'm Joseph. Joseph, he gathered the chosen family to himself as the nation gathered in Egypt to live. And this is where, again, we look further to the time when the Messiah will come, gather his people, and they will look on the one whom they have pierced. And by faith, they will live with him and share with him during the millennial reign. So verse 15 in your text in Acts, notice what it says. So Jacob, he went down to Egypt and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. Stephen is still driving home this point. He is just driving home this point that it was more than just about the land in Israel. It was all about walking by faith with the Savior. And you have to ask yourself here, why did Stephen mention Shechem? I mean, who cares? Why did he mention Shechem? What's the point of this? Well, Jacob and his sons, 
including Joseph, where did they die? Down in Egypt, correct? And Genesis 50 tells us that Jacob was buried in Abraham's burial plot. Joshua 24 teaches that Joseph was buried in Shechem. And here in verse 16, Stephen adds to it and he tells us that Joseph's brothers, their bodies were also brought back and hauled back, if you will, and buried in Shechem. And the people brought their bodies back because they knew and understood that the future of God's people would be in the promised land. Now, Hebrews 11, it helps us on this. It teaches this. Notice, by faith Jacob, when he was dying, he blessed each one of the sons of Joseph and worshipped. How beautiful is that? He's dying and he worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. Both of these men, impressive. They showed great faith. When Jacob died, he worshipped God. And Joseph, he looked ahead to the promises that God gave to his great-grandfather. Talk about timing. His great-grandfather, Abraham, about the deliverance of the nation of Israel from Egypt. And he tells his sons to actually drag his old bones back to Canaan when he dies. He believed it, even though he wouldn't see it. He lived by faith. Now these men were carried back to be buried. They believed God. They looked to the promise. But this little comment about Shechem, remember, we're still talking about Shechem. What is that in the text in verse 16? It actually would drive a stake, if you will, into the hearts of the members of the Sanhedrin. Now why? Why does this matter? Well, because Shechem was the center of life for the Samaritans. It was the center of life for the Samaritans. The Jewish people, you know, of course, they hated the Samaritans. But what made it absolutely worse is that close by to Shechem, the Samaritans had built their own temple right right close by. And the Jews, they were trying to accuse Stephen of speaking against the temple in Jerusalem, of pretty much speaking against God himself. And Stephen responds, he responds by saying, Joseph and his brothers were buried in Samaria, Shechem. His point, you see, was to make them see that God had been speaking and moving in the lives of people in and outside of Jerusalem with or without a temple. Now, before we leave verse 16, notice that Stephen said Abraham bought the tomb from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. Genesis teaches us that it was Jacob that did this, that Jacob did this, not Abraham. So what do we do again? Well, this is actually common. Do not fret. This is actually common. We see this in the Old Testament. Because the way they viewed things back then is that an ancestor would be seen as taking part in the actions of his descendants. And it's also just as much possible that Abraham, he did buy the land, but so much time went by, years later he had to come back and buy it all over again. So watch the wording in verse 17 with me in your text in Acts. But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and they multiplied in Egypt. You see, the focus here is on God fulfilling his promise to Abraham. God, if you think about it, created time 
just for us. God doesn't need time. He created time for mankind. But he always has his eyes looking at the clock, if you will. He does things right on time. We may not think it sometimes when we're going through things, but God always does things right on time. The fathers of the nation of Israel, they enjoyed a time of prosperity while they were in Egypt. About 70 men entered into Egypt. And Exodus tells us it was quite a bit more, wasn't it, that left. It was 600,000 men that left Egypt. Meaning the population, the total population with women and children would have been around 2 million Jewish people. This was just as much a part of the work of the Lord as the parting of the Red Sea. And God, he fulfilled his word to Abraham in Genesis 35. Take a look at the promise in Genesis 35. Also, God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you. And kings shall come from your body. Now this became a problem. The blessing of God actually threatened those who did not know God. It threatened the Egyptians and the Pharaoh. But even this was predicted, wasn't it? Remember what it it says in the Old Testament. Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. And will serve them. And they will afflict them 400 years. You think you get impatient with your problems? 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions. I was teasing the kids yesterday afternoon. I was getting impatient. And I said, it's hard to preach on patience when you're impatient. We all battle this. With millions of Jewish people now in Egypt, Pharaoh felt threatened because tensions were now beginning to rise. And Stephen mentions this in verse 18 in your Bible. Till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our fathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. Now it's worth our time this morning to head to Exodus chapter 1. Notice the record from the Word of God. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Consistent, isn't it? And he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Watch the wording closely. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. Let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply and it happen in the event of war, that they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. Notice the wording. In other words, let's put it this way. Notice the human justification for persecuting the Jews. Because that's what we have here. Let us deal shrewdly with them. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar and brick and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. Then notice the command of Pharaoh down in verse 22. 
So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall what? Cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. The people of Israel, they were viewed as a potential threat, and they were seen as a cheap source of labor. And the people of Israel were forced to be slaves of the Egyptians. Archaeologists have actually uncovered all the evidence of this. Paintings of Egyptians using this exact type of slavery as, as their source of labor. With guards and watchmen standing over them as taskmasters while the people worked. But what continues to strike me, here's what I kept thinking about this week as I was looking at this. What continues to strike me about the events of Exodus chapter 1 is the parallels we find between Pharaoh and Adolf Hitler. Isn't that kind of interesting? Hitler referred to it as the Jewish question and came to the same exact conclusion as that of Pharaoh 3,400 years ago. The conclusion of both of these men was that the systematic murder of an entire race was somehow the solution to their problems. Instead of using the gas chambers, Pharaoh's plan was to use the Nile River. And had God not intervened back then, every Hebrew male would have been thrown into the river, causing the end of the Jews in basically just one generation. Think of the terror. Put yourself in that day. Think of the terror. This must have caused the young Jewish families at the thought, at the thought of having their male children torn away from them and flung into the Nile River. This was the dreadful bondage of the nation of Israel at the time, setting the stage perfectly for us for another Redeemer to save them. And we'll see next week that once again, Israel, right on cue, they rejected the man that was sent to them. In the winter, how about that for a good-looking guy right there? That's Emperor Licinius of the Roman Empire. And in the winter of 320 A.D., Emperor Licinius, he sent out an edict that all soldiers underneath his command, in an effort to make them demonstrate their allegiance, all soldiers were to offer sacrifices to pagan gods. Forty members... Forty members of the 12th Legion of Rome's Imperial Army, serving in what is present-day Turkey, these 40 men said, no way, we're not doing it. They refused the emperor's order. So their governor, he summoned these 40 Christians, and he ordered them to obey. And one of the soldiers answered on behalf of the rest of them, and he said, we will not sacrifice. To do so is to betray our faith. Well, the governor, he then asked them, he said, but what about your friends? Consider this, you alone from Caesar's troops defy him. Think of the disgrace you bring upon your legion. How can you do it, he asked. And the answer came, to disgrace the name of our Lord Jesus Christ is more terrible still. Well, finally, at this point, the governor's getting frustrated and he was upset about this. So he told them to give up this stubborn folly. You have no Lord but Caesar. In his name, he commanded, I promise promotion to the first of you who steps forward and does his duty. And he paused for a moment, expecting that this would cause some of them to break their ranks. But not one of them moved. And so he switched his approach, and he told them, 
You persist in your rebellion. Therefore, prepare for torture. Prepare for prison and then death. This is your last chance. Will you obey your emperor? Well, soldiers, they, they stood firm, knowing that the governor would carry out his threat. And then one of them spoke, nothing you can offer us would replace what we would lose in the next world. As for your threats, we've learned to obey our bodies where the welfare of our souls is at stake. We've learned to deny our bodies. Over the next several days, the, the threats were followed out. The men were flogged. And then they were thrown into a dungeon. And finally they were marched out onto a frozen lake. And they were stripped of their clothes and told to either die or renounce Jesus Christ. And in the cold air of the night, a prayer from the men was heard. They prayed the following. Lord... There are 40 of us here engaged in this battle. Grant it that there may be 40 crowned and not one be missing from this number. One by one, the temperature slowly took its toll as the men began to fall to their death on the ice. And finally, there was only one man left. And I'm sad to say that he did. He lost his courage. He stumbled to shore and he renounced Jesus Christ. Meanwhile, the officer of the guards that had been watching the events unfold, he watched the witness of these soldiers for Christ. And when he saw 39 men face their own death for the sake of the gospel of Christ, for their faith, he too at that moment placed his trust in Christ for their salvation. So when he saw that last man break rank on the ice and renounce his faith, this old Roman officer He actually walked out onto the ice. He tore off his clothes and confessed to all that he too was a believer in Jesus. And when the sun rose the next morning, there were 40 bodies of soldiers who had fought to the death for the gospel, for the gospel of Jesus. The promise of God is that he will never leave us nor forsake us. We may suffer. We may suffer in the short term. We may die before we see his promises for the future actually come true. Joseph did. Here was a man that was tested. His brothers turned their backs on him. Falsely accused in Egypt and thrown into prison. But no matter how dark and how difficult his path, Joseph wasn't alone in his suffering. The Bible teaches us that God was with him. Practice thinking about the presence of God in your life. It'll help you. Remember your position in Christ. Remember that as a child of God, there's never a time in your life when he is not with you. You see, God loves you with a passion. It's hard for us to grasp, isn't it? But God loves you with a passion. He enjoys being with you just as much as you enjoy being with those that you love. In Hebrews 13.5, it says that God has promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's better than that in Greek. It's actually much better. Here's what it says. If you could capture the sense of the Greek in the English, the promise of God would be this. I will never, ever, ever forsake you. What a wonderful promise. 
Can you, as a believer in Christ, get excited about the presence of God in your life? No matter what you face, God is right there with you every step of the way. He was there for Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And he's there for you. Walk in his forgiveness. Walk in his presence. Find the victory that comes by trusting, depending on Jesus to be the source of our life and our strength, our day-by-day strength for living. In my experience, the greatest hindrance that stands in the way of people experiencing the victorious Christian life is that we refuse to accept the simplicity of the truth that victory comes by grace through faith. With nothing else required. You see, we think in our own minds it has to be more complicated. We think that there has to be a catch. We rebel against the very notion that grace is our only means to victory because all that grace asks of us is that we trust Jesus and His Word and walk by faith. Stephen believed this message. He believed that this is how God worked in the life of Israel and that this is how God works in the life of the church. And he wanted the Sanhedrin to understand that God worked in the life of Israel through faithful, faithful men. And these faithful men, they were rejected again and again and again, just like our Savior, just like Jesus. Being rejected by the world, it's to be expected. And so I ask you, where are you at on your journey of faith this morning? May I encourage you to continue to stand? Stand faithful. Live for the Savior, knowing His presence, knowing His grace, walking each day by faith. The Rapture, Israel, the Tribulation, the Kingdom of God, the Millennium, the Judgment Seat of Christ, the Battle of Armageddon. These are just some of the topics that we cover in our book, What Lies Ahead. We wanted to write a book that was easy to understand, that would give a good, solid overview of the end times. You can find it on our website, returntotheword.com. That book, again, is What Lies Ahead. And if you've read it, leave us a review on Amazon. It helps us. It helps us to tell others about this study of God's plan for the end times. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time on Return to the Word. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.